0: Welcome to our session on Injustice in Science. I'm Susan Lindy, a historian of science at the University of Pennsylvania. This recording comes to you courtesy of the Consortium for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine in Philadelphia, and this is an international consortium of institutions devoted to the study of the history of science. The last few years have animated a new reckoning with injustices of the past. Universities are rejecting donors associated with the opioid epidemic, and they're removing busts of those who promoted brutal colonial policies. Princeton finally decided to rename campus built facilities that honored the avid segregationist Woodrow Wilson. Even in the American South, statues of Confederate heroes are coming down. Questions of historical injustice loom large at this moment. Our session suggests that science too has its problematic statues. Today's discussion elaborates on a shorter and smaller session in Justice in Science for which all talks have been pre-recorded and they're available on the American Association for the Advancement of Science uh, meeting site. And there will be a live discussion of this uh, AAAS meeting session to take place virtually Sunday, February 20th from 12 to 1245. In this broader discussion, we explore the tangled lives of two 20th century physicists, Lisa Meitner and Robert Millikan. Meitner was never fully recognized for her scientific contributions and unfairly denied a Nobel Prize. Her peer, Robert Milliken, did receive this honor, but his name has now been removed from buildings at Caltech because of his roles in supporting racist eugenics. In Meitner's case, restitution would involve an admission by the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences that there was a deliberate effort by both the chemistry and the physics committees and in the academy more generally to deny Meitner the prize. The Millikan case calls for reconsideration of the ideas and legacies of a scientist who enjoyed tremendous prestige and power during his own lifetime. So who shall be our heroes in science and for what deeds? Institutions of science devoted to research-based truths should acknowledge the uncomfortable facts that emerge from serious historical research. We here explore how historians, scientists, and archivists can play a more active role in shaping science today. We suggest it is time for science to have its own reckoning with history. Our first speaker today is Peter Colopy. He is university archivist and head of archives and special collections at Caltech. He played a critical role in the Millikan case and he has worked to use archives to engage with questions of justice and public understanding. Second is Michael Che, a, a professor of political science at UCLA and a Caltech alum. In 2020, Che gathered 1,000 signatures of alum who demanded the removal of Millikan's name from Caltech buildings. Third is Ruth Lewin Syme, a chemist now emerita from the Department of Chemistry Sacramento City College and the author of a remarkable 1996 biography of Lisa Meitner. Um, called subtitled A Life in Physics. Our fourth presenter is Robert Mark Friedman, historian of science and playwright at the University of Oslo. He's the author of The Politics of Excellence, a History of the Nobel Prize, and of the widely performed play Remembering Miss Meitner. Finally, our commentator is the biologist Sue V. Rosser, who until her retirement played a key leadership role in questions of gender in the University of California system and at San Francisco State University as provost and executive vice president for academic affairs. Thank you for being here today. And now, Peter.
1: Thank you, Susan. Um, And uh, thank you to my co-panelists for joining this session. In November, Caltech renamed a building and other assets named after one of its most prominent faculty, American physicist Robert A. Milliken. Over the last year and a half, student and alumni advocacy at Caltech for removing names from the campus landscape has prompted new historical interest in Millikan, and in Caltech's relationship through him and others to the Human Betterment Foundation, which advocated for involuntary eugenic sterilization. Today, I'm going to focus on how Millikan, as a powerful scientist and administrator, himself addressed questions of sex and gender in physics and eugenics. In the 1920s and 1930s, Robert A. Millikan was the most prominent scientist born in the United States. He received the Nobel Prize in 1923 for his determination of the charge of an electron and for research on the photoelectric effect, an effort to disprove Albert Einstein's corpuscular theory of light which instead produced evidence supporting it. He was leading the California Institute of Technology to a central position in physics and American science. And his research on cosmic rays, a term he coined, had long made headlines, as has his blending of science and religion in describing them as birth cries of atoms continually being created. When Duke University hired the German refugee physicist, Hertha Spooner in 1936, Milliken wrote to the department chair questioning the decision. The university's president wrote back to ask for further advice, and Milliken argued against hiring women in physics. At least 95% of the ablest minds that are now going into physics are men, he wrote, and they needed men for mentors. There were, Milliken conceded, exceptional women physicists, and indeed, he wrote, Fraulein Meitner of Berlin and Madame Curie of Paris are in the front rank of the world's recognized physicists. But since no other living women had achieved as much as Meitner, he suggested, no other was qualified to be a professor at Duke. As Margaret Rossiter writes, rather than opening the doors, these two examples justified continued exclusion. For, to Milliken at least, their achievement now marked the minimum acceptable level. During Millikan's leadership, His own Caltech did not hire women as faculty or admit them as students. The institution would first admit a woman graduate student in 1953 after Millikan left the presidency, hire a woman as a professor in 1969, and admit women as undergraduates in 1970. Millikan also associated his own race with greater achievement in science and industry. That race was, he wrote, Nordic, Anglo-Saxon, and Aryan, ethnicities with which Millikan associated ideals of progress, responsibility, and individual initiative. Conversely, in a 1924 book, Millikan associated Asia with static civilizations of irrational and suffering people. Later, in a 1946 letter to Life publisher Henry Luce regarding British rule in India, Millikan argued for the necessity of colonialism. Only a few Anglo-Saxon and European countries, he wrote, were capable of constitutional representative government, but the rest of the world must be handled by something that approaches dictatorship. In a 1951 letter to his wife, Greta, Millikan expressed similar concern about self-government by Mississippi's Black majority, an unthinkable disaster in view of the sort of people they now are. He wrote. In 1938, Millikan became a trustee of an organization which, in the name of scientific progress and small government, advocated for denying both men and women reproductive autonomy. This was the Human Betterment Foundation. In 1909, California had become the third state to pass a bill authorizing superintendents of asylums and prisons to sterilize patients and inmates without their consent. Over the decades to come, the state sterilized increasing numbers of people, totaling over 20,000 by the 1960s, a third of the national total. Legislators and administrators increasingly articulated their motivations for sterilization in terms of eugenics, selective breeding to improve the fitness of the human population. Among eugenic sterilization's enthusiastic supporters were Pasadena lawyer and rancher Ezra Gosney and biologist Paul Popinot, local to Caltech. In the late 1920s, the two men visited state institutions, obtained copies of their medical records, and began statistical analysis to measure and demonstrate the individual and social benefits of sterilization, which they believed existed. They also incorporated the Human Betterment Foundation, recruited a board of trustees, which shared members with Caltechs, and began publishing and distributing books and pamphlets advocating for the expansion of what they called eugenic sterilization of the hereditary defective. In the early 1930s, the foundation mailed pamphlets advocating sterilization to Nazi administrators and influenced Germany's 1933 eugenic sterilization law. In their 1938 pamphlet, Human Sterilization Today, the foundation presented sterilization as a solution to the economic problem that, quote, births among families habitually living on public charity are often 50% higher than births among self-supporting families. In a draft of the pamphlet, they expressed an additional racial motivation. Native whites in California, they wrote, produce only 69% enough children to take the place of those who die. Enacting this anxiety about the demise of the white race, the state of California disproportionately sterilized Mexican and Mexican American people. State institutions also disproportionately sterilized women. By joining the Foundation's Board of Trustees that same year, his name is last on the list here, Millikan lent the organization his scientific reputation and formally took responsibility for its work. May I congratulate you and the trustees of the Human Betterment Foundation, he wrote in one letter to Gosney, on the generous gift you are making to a great cause. In his insightful biography, The Rise of Robert Millikan, Robert Cargan writes that Millikan saw himself as a progressive conservative, and that his approach to research also embodied this duality, as he strived to contribute both to the new physics, with its emphasis on theorizing the subatomic, and to the distinctly American, pragmatic, measurement oriented physics of his mentor, A.A. Michelson. Millikan's choice of the measurement of E, the charge of an electron, as a research program reflects his decision to serve two masters, writes Cargan, while his unsuccessful attempt to falsify Einstein's theory of the photoelectric effect, which Millikan described as unthinkable, bold, and reckless, was undertaken to restrain the excesses of modernity. In his own writing, Millikan argued against the popular rhetoric of revolutionary discoveries. The growth of science, he wrote, is in general by a a process of accretion, almost never by revolution. Millikan and the Human Betterment Foundation found common cause because of their shared belief in progress within existing hierarchies progress without egalitarianism. Millikan often referred to this progress as evolutionary. And here, too, his vision matched that of the foundation. Gosney and Popono identified the reproduction of poor people and people with disabilities as a threat to this gradual human progress. And they advocated an evolutionary intervention, reducing reproduction through involuntary sterilization. Consistent with his visions of progress within science and politics, Millikan granted them his support. When Caltech began to revisit this history in 2020, humanists there organized a series of events which brought historical expertise and inquiry to the subjects of eugenics and other injustice at and beyond our institution. Through a series of panel discussions, a reading group and other events, we aim to invite our community of scientists, engineers and students to engage their full selves in understanding our predecessors who shaped our institution. At one event, students and postdocs presented on uncomfortable things in the Caltech archives, records and objects which provide evidence of institutional histories of exclusion, inequality, and discrimination. Taking us on a tour of photographs, letters, memos, and even this death mask, these students asked us to think about how institutions prioritize who they educate and who they exclude, who they memorialize and whose memories they neglect. So I want to ask everyone, asked chemical engineer Sophia Charan. Who are we remembering and are they the right people? When I look at these photographs, explained geologist Christine Chen, these archives of human history rather than earth history, I think about what isn't in these images as much as what is. And as with rocks, I think about the biases and the processes that determine the composition of the images. One place to begin building a just science, students and postdocs suggested is by sitting with the records of the ways in which it has not been and this is the full list of contributors to that project as well as the url for the recorded presentations which i recommend and uh, that is the conclusion
2: thank you
0: thank you so much peter um our next speaker then is michael
2: thanks so much for the invitation it's really an honor to be such a, a very esteemed Panel of scholars and um, I really appreciate appreciated to be part of this uh, this event. So I'm going to take a parallel kind of tack as, to Peter. So um, similarly, I'm going to talk about the Human Betterment Foundation. So this is a pamphlet. This is the same one Peter just brought up. Um, this is a pamphlet published by the Human Betterment Foundation, um, headquartered in Pasadena in 1938. So um, the Human Betterment Foundation was really one of the world's um, leading Advocates for forced sterilization in the 20s and 30s, and it's had a very long historical impact in Southern California and all around the world. That pamphlet, which uh, Peter distributed, they um, P- Peter talked about, was distributed. 140,000 copies were distributed in a very large mass campaign. They were, they were, they saw themselves as doing research, but mainly they saw themselves, and they said this out loud as um, trying to kind of promote the idea. They were promoters. They were educators. They were trying to pamphleteering was their thing. So. Um, they advocated in this pamphlet um, that um, as much as 10% of the US population should be forcibly sterilized. 10% of as much as 10% of the US population could be considered as mentally diseased. So um, between 1909 and 1979, 1979, over 20,000 people, some still living today, were forcibly sterilized in California, far more than in any other state in the US. And historians have looked at this see that a very clear connection with this very large number of sterilizations for sterilizations in California with, with the existence of these uh, organizations like Human Betterment Foundation. And the uh, Human Betterment Foundation was very proud of this. So there's nothing kind of, you know, underground or like something you had to cover. This is all very much in public records. In fact, again, that was their whole point. They wanted to be publicized. They're, they saw themselves as trying to advocate for this. So they're very upfront. And the Los Angeles Times and the um, Harry Chandler was a was the publisher and they had like weekly columns on this kind of thing, like it was very, very regular. So they took part of it, part of it. And um, they worked hand in hand with California state officials. So when Gosney, who was the president of the Human Benefit Foundation, who um, Peter talked about, when he died, uh, California Governor Colbert Olson um, publicly proclaimed that he was an outstanding force the advancement of the practice of sterilization and mental deviance. So again, um, very public, very open. They were very proud of it. They worked hand in hand. I mean, in the sense that they would gradually. Go to like state facilities and work with the state officials kind of in, in the areas, in, in some of these areas, like, uh, um, like um, kind of homes for, um, you know, for people and, you know, where people were incarcerated. Okay, in 1933, Peter talked about this too, so Nazi Germany passed the law of the prevention of offspring with hereditary diseases, mandating um, for sterilization of people with certain disabilities. Um, this caused the sterilization of, of roughly 400,000 people. And the Human Betterment Foundation was very, very enthusiastic about this law. So they mailed this pamphlet, um, Human Sterilization to Nazi administrators responsible for enforcing this law. Um, two Nazi politicians who advocated for sterilization used the Human, Men- human Betterment Foundation's pamphlet to argue for the law. Um, so Paul Popineau is one of the employees of the Human Betterment Foundation in this article in the Journal of Heredity. He discussed the German forced sterilization law in depth and quoted from Hitler's book, Mein Kampf liberally and without criticism. The American sociological review, Marie E. Kopp wrote, the leaders of the German sterilization movement state repeatedly that their legislation was formulated only after careful study of the California experiment as reported by Mr. Gosling, Dr. Popino. So again, there was a very tight um, intellectual and uh, um, kind of administrative connection between um, Nazi Germany their um, sterilization effort and the Human Betterment Foundation. And the Human Betterment Foundation, folks are proud of this. So uh, this is C.M. um, Goethe, trustee of the Human Betterment Foundation, another leader of the Human Foundation. You wrote to Gazi in 1935, your work has played a very powerful, your work has played a powerful part in shaping the opinions of the group of intellectuals who are by Hitler in this epic-making program. Everywhere I sense that their opinions have been tremendously stimulated by American thought and particularly by the work of the Human Betterment Foundation. I want you, my dear friend, to carry this thought with you for the rest of your life that you have really jolted into into action a great government of 60 million people. So, Human Veteran Foundation people were very proud of what they were doing and very proud and open about their association with Nazi Germany. So, in 1943, the Los Angeles Times reported that the assets, which comprised of land and uh, some cash, but mainly land, I guess, was um, $171,000 in 1942, which is roughly equivalent to $3 million today. The assets of the human betterment foundation were being transferred to Caltech. And so this is, again, public. The quotation is from this article is, the foundation's research in the field of eugenics will be continued by the Institute under the terms of an agreement signed by James R. Page, president of the Caltech Board of Trustees. So um, I'm taking a parallel attack. Of course, so one of the connections of Caltech to the human betterment foundation was through Millikan, but there was actually a much more direct to, um, connection, which is Human, Be- Human Betterment Foundation, gave all its stuff, including its assets and papers, to Caltech. So Caltech assumed them publicly, no problem. You know, this is the front page of the LA Times. This is May nineteen forty-seven. This is a Caltech internal publication. Um, I get it still today as an alumnus, <laughs> engineering and science. They wrote that Gosni and Popmano carried on an extensive study in the field of eugenic sterilization. So they named eugenic sterilization. There was no kind of uh, you know they were totally okay with saying those words, and um, they also said the trust after Gauss's death, the trustees of the Human Betterment Foundation agreed that the best interests of the foundation would be served by transferring its activities to the California Institute of Technology. So, California Caltech, California Institute of Technology, publicly accepted the activities and assets of the Human Betterment Foundation. And you might say, well, you know, maybe people didn't know what eugenics was about. Well, this is 1947. This is after World War II was over. This is after the discovery of the Nazi death camps. Yeah. so it was pretty clear what was, what were the implications of eugenics? Okay. So again, according to its own public announcement, Caltech accepted the research in the field of eugenics again, using the word eugenics and using the word sterilization, right, yeah? Um, and activities, the human betterment of And also Lois Gosney Castle, that was the daughter of E.S. Gosney. So she helped transfer the assets. I think she helped sell off the land, et cetera. She wrote that it was understood that substantially the same activities would be carried on at Caltech. And Caltech also established a small office for the Human Bedroom Foundation within the biological laboratory and retained the services of Lois Castle, Gossett's daughter, on a part-time basis. Um, And Caltech houses the Human Bedroom Foundation papers today. So um, Caltech assumed the assets, assumed the activities, including specifically saying sterilization and eugenics, and uh, how's paid an employee and how's the uh, Human Betterment Foundation's work? How's an employee? They're on the campus, okay? So if you can think of like how one organization can assume the activities of another, it's hard to believe it could be any closer, <laughs> right? Okay. So what happened since 1947? So in all this has been known, so like, when i was doing some searches for this like this is all talked about in the la times in 1996 or something so this has been there's nothing secret about this so um all this has been known but uh, um as far as i know caltech has not changed its position on the human betterment foundation to this day in the sense that they've never said oh we do no longer support the activities of the human betterment foundation okay so and it's the first july 2020 announcement um this is in response to our petition about renaming Caltech President Thomas Rosenbaum mentioned the Human Betterment Foundation, but did not express an opinion about its activities one way or the other. Okay, in a later announcement, he did use the phrase Millikan, who was associated with the morally representative eugenics movement, through the Human Betterment Foundation. So it's the first time, as I'm aware of, the first time definitely that anyone's ever quoted of Caltech actually using judgmental words about the Human Betterment ben- Foundation. Okay, but really more importantly, still to this day. So if you look at this, what Rose Bob said is, he's saying Millikan was associated, you know, Milliken was associated with the morally reprehensible eugenics movement through the Human Betterment Foundation. But that's important. But much more important is Caltech assumed the activities and assets and papers and housed employees of the Human Betterment Foundation. The there was there's a, there's a close, I mean, institutional, not a personal connection between Caltech and the Human Betterment Foundation. In other words, Caltech has the ability to transfer the assets to the Human Betterment Foundation and apologize for the asset for what the Human Betterment Foundation did because it assumed activities assumed responsibility for what it did. And again, Caltech has never publicly addressed this. This is a Sybil Garcia Coyle. She's a woman who signed our petition. I'm a writer in Pasadena, resident who signed your petition. My husband is a physicist at JPL as well. I'm Puerto Rican, and eugenics was used extensively there. It is just for some more context to tell you how important this is to me and many others. And so what she's referring to is between 1930 and 1970, roughly one third of Puerto Rican women were sterilized. So again, this um, this pattern of sterilization, this kind of proselytization for it had very, very large consequences. This is a, um, a picture of Maria Hurtado. This is a, a still from the um, documentary No Mas Bebes. Um, For example, again, this is another kind of implication 1975 10 Mexican American women successfully sued Los Angeles County Hospital for sterilizing without their consent. Okay, so three women were interviewed for this film. So all I'm saying is that the uh, implications of forced sterilization are still very much with us. Anyway, so like, like I said before, the human Betterment of infidation assets still exist. Um, they're still being used to pay for a postdoc at Caltech. They're, the activities of the human Betterment of were publicly accepted by Caltech and Caltech has never publicly changed its position. Caltech is the direct institutional successor of the Human Betterment Foundation and can apologize and pay reparations to the thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of people that were forcibly sterilized. Actions that I proudly took responsibility and credit for. Also, this is a parallel argument to Peter's, which is that note that this does not depend on any individual person associated with Caltech, including what their beliefs were, whether they're racist, whether their views were common at the time. So many things that people talk about when they talk about you know, like, how should we you know, evaluate people in the past I mean, whether there's scientific achievements compensate for the personal feelings, et etc. This is not an argument by people, this is an argument by institutions. And then there, the, the record is 100% clear. Um, again, the fact that Caltech is the institutional successor of the human betterment foundation is a crucial issue. Again, however, our discourse is focused almost exclusively on individuals and not institutions. And so I guess I'll spend the rest of my little presentation talking why I think this may be. so. Um, like Peter talked about, the Human Betterment Foundation trustees included uh, Milliken and other folks who um, whose names have also been removed from campus. Um, so when I started the started when I helped start this petition, it was me and other folks, we had like a lot of signatories. Um, but look, in some sense, right from the beginning, we made the mistake in some sense, I consider it a mistake, which is this a remove Milliken's name from Caltech, which has made it about Milliken from the start. And again, why is it, you know even so being critical people, Thought this was about Milliken and kind of didn't see the institutional connection. I guess I was not aware of it. It's easier to Google Milliken than Google like this institutional relationship, you know, and uh, um, so, you know, I kind of fell into this thing, you know, of it's about Milliken. Only later did I realize that, you know, it's actually a very tight con- institutional connection. In that sense, it's like different from from as far as I know USC. So USC um, removed the uh, name of von Klein-Smith, who is also uh, one of the trustees of the Human Betterment Foundation for a similar reason, but USC does not own the assets of the Human Development Foundation. Okay, so why is this course all about Milton? So, in part, it's because kind of like what Peter was talking about. There's a historical moment where you know there's a lot of talk about Civil War monuments. This is about the people in the Civil War. You know, this is kind of the analogous to removing a, a, a mon- Civil War monument. You were removing the you know a monument like a name, a name, a building named after a person. So, um, when I think about it a little more, I'm thinking though one of the things it really is is that it's easier to cast out a few individuals rather than accept. Ownership responsibility for an entire institution. So, like I, you know, went to Caltech. I loved it, and I think it's kind of an important part of my identity. It's much easier to say, "Oh, Milliken's a bad person," than to say Caltech as an institution really is really messed up. You know? It's easier to say that somebody is not us, as opposed to look at what we are doing. <laughs> and um, again, it's easier to always think in terms of aberrations rather than consider our institutions sort of systematic gross in humanity. In other words, it's like it's easier to say, "Oh, my grandfather was a slave owner," and therefore we should exclude them, as opposed to saying slavery was bad, and slavery was very much a part of what we all grew up and our country's economy. This makes sense. Okay, so um, we're talking about a little bit about justice so this will come up I'm sure I mean when we talk about Lisa Weitner, So how do we get justice and I just want to point out that our ability to just to get justice, you have to face the facts and our ability to face the facts here is very, very, very limited <laughs> in some sense absurdly limited, at least in, if you look at the Caltech renaming report. In the sense that, so the renaming report actually brought off this minutes of the board of trustees when they met on the Gosney fund. And this is the quote, it is our understanding that the terms of the gift, so they're accepting the human benefit of on money. While very liberal, indicate that this income is to be used for study of the biological basis of human characteristics, because of past interests, i.e. eugenic sterilization served for sterilization served by the Gosney fund, it would seem fitting if at the institution of the plan, the fellowships should be devoted to studies of heredity or heredity-related subjects. So, if you read this, you don't see any distancing language. In fact, you use the, there's the word "seem fitting." <laughs> but this name, 2020 renaming report, written by you know this committee of Caltech scientists and students and trustees, says that from the outset, the California Institute of Technology clearly distanced itself from the Human Betterment Foundation's programs. So, I mean, to me, this is just crazy. I mean, there's no there's no distancing language. It's just simply just like. Kind of proof by assertion that doesn't make sense at all. It's almost laughable. Um, in the 2020 renaming report, they wrote it has been alleged that Milliken led the HBF. He did not, nor did he shape his policies. Rather, Milliken, who had long been famous in the United States for about barber's son of his endeavors, led his prestige and by extension Caltex to the HBF when he joined the HBF's Board of Trustees, while well, chair of Caltech's executive council. again Of course, Millikan did add his prestige, but that's not the core issue. The core issue is that Caltech is the institutional successor of the Human Betterment Foundation, public accepted activities, and has not disavowed them. Um, The 2020 renaming report, just again, this is the ability to face fact, it did not even discuss the Human Betterment Foundation's direct and proud involvement with the 1933 Nazi sterilization law. It didn't mention that Sarah Sam, the only African American student in the renaming committee, resigned from it. So that was not even, you know, a real process, it pros- initiating its own process. Didn't even um, talk about that at all. Sarah Sam wrote in, in her resignation letters because that several. She stated that several and this is naming task force members have failed to demonstrate a basic understanding of race, class, disability, and oppression. Because of the unwillingness to condemn irrefutable evidence of overt racism, I have lost faith that this committee will be able to complete its charges in a responsible way. So again, you would think that. This is a very large challenge to the legitimacy of the uh, um, the naming task force, of this committee, but the committee did not address it at all. So you can even people who are fairly um, sympathetic, like this is a um, an article by um, Nidhi Subraman in Nature. So um, the title is Caltech Confronted His Racist Past, which, of course, that's not untrue. And, we you know, for the first time in many, you know many years, this became a subject of conversation, the subject of discussion and, you know, we talked about all these things which happened, but um you, you know it's you think about it though, it's a if you use the term confronting the racist past, com- sorry, confronting its racist past, it was a very, very limited way of confronting it. The single most relevant aspect was ignored, i.e., the fact that Caltech accepted the activities, the Hindeman Foundation accepted the money, accepted the papers, accepted the mission. Okay, using the words eugenics <laughs> And so you so. Realizing my stake by that time, <laughs> I said that, so we were taking pictures for this uh, um, article and I first suggested, oh, let's take the picture near where the of Millikan used to be. I um, mean, I thought that'd be kind of cool because we're gonna show that Millikan's not there anymore. Then I realized, well, it's actually really not about Millikan, we should really focus it in on the institutional connection. So instead I suggested, let's do it in the lab where the human benefit foundation was actually um, housed. Okay, that was in Kirchhoff laboratory. So that was my, kind of attempt to try to bring it back to what I thought was important. And I think, you know, it is important. So let's compare Caltech's response to other organizations starting. So like uh, um, Peter talked about, this is the um, petition by the uh, Black scientists and engineers at Caltech. So notice that they are looking at renaming buildings, but most of their focus is on actual material support, like more fellowships, more mentoring. And you know they had it right. I mean, in some sense, the renaming is important, but it's only, you know, it's really part of like transferring resources. That's really what the issue is. This is um, a group of people, the neighborhood of Unitarian Universalist Church in Pasadena. So this is a church, a small community church in Pasadena. Militant co-founded it, and um, in, re- around the same time, twenty twenty, they held the Truth and Reconciliation Project. And again, it's striking to me just how much how much more comprehensive they thought about the whole thing than Caltech did. I thought, thought about they 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 wrote through education outreach and faith oriented action mem- action members work to dismantle white supremacy and promote reparations for those directly and indirectly harmed so you know they were able to do this it's not like some sort of um, you need great moral fortitude to say hey maybe we should um try to apologize and pay reparations to people we harmed so um you know caltech did not even think about this and mention it okay so when i talked to donna perkins who's a member of this uh, neighborhood unitarian universalist church this She wrote me saying, what's not clear to me is what Caltech is going to do about the fact that they took the assets from the HBF to fund research in genetics. Is Caltech going to make financial acquisitions? Also not clear, how is Caltech going to educate about this history on the campus so that the history is not forgotten and the reason for the name changes are understood. So again, um, very obvious points, very good points, not really in the scope of um, what Caltech did. So, um, It makes me think again, this is very open ended and speculative, but is there something about Caltech, which makes it worse than the neighborhood unitarian universalist church. Okay, what is it, you know, um, which makes it particularly bad, I mean, at understanding or even acknowledging kind of responsibility. Um, Maybe it's people often bring this up, you know, that scientists should be better trained in moral philosophy or something, but I don't really think that's the issue. I think, you know, again, like, um, you know, you could say maybe church members are more likely to think in terms of, you know, reparations and, you know, morality, but um, there's this term weaponized incompetence, which is like you're so incompetent at something you actually kind of it's a way of pushing things off to other people. Um, I think that's part of it, but I don't, I kind of again like especially the quote about like saying that this document proves that Caltech distances self- right from the banking, that doesn't even make logical sense. it just doesn't. I mean so I think it's it's not just the absence of something it's a presence of something <laughs> it's not the absence of being able to think morally okay um. Maybe what, that, what is that? So I mean, maybe it's easier, like I said, but we're easier to research and think about people than institutions. That's part of it. Um, it's easier to use a mode of aberration. We're going to kind of exclude this aberration rather than kind of own it. Or um, maybe just sort of simple like idolatry, like we think of you know all these things that when we think of science, we think of Milliken. We don't think of the institution of Caltech. You know, And um, you know that's something, again, when I wrote the petition, started writing the petition, then I kind of fell into that, too. I think also just maybe it's easier to think about exceptions as bad as when it's actually the rules are bad, not the exceptions. So, okay, thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Michael. Um, Our next speaker is Ruth. When it comes to
3: injustice in the sciences, the physicist Lisa Meitner is on just about every list. The reason is very clear. She was a co-discoverer of nuclear fission, and the 1944 Nobel Prize for the discovery went to Otto Hahn, her scientific partner, and not to her. At the time, the physics community was outraged. Altogether, she was nominated nearly 50 times, and it is still regarded as a scandal. There are other women and there are a number of men who are also unjustly left out, which leaves us with questions about the scientific competence, and the basic fairness of these and other Nobel decisions. But for Meitner, the injustice went much further than the Nobel Prize she didn't get. For a time, Meitner was an exception, a rarity, a woman scientist who succeeded in a thoroughly male domain. She was really good, and she was fortunate, supported by teachers and powerful mentors. She was fortunate at the start to find a scientific partner in Otto Hahn, a chemist her age, who wanted to work with a physicist. So she had a laboratory where she could prove herself, which led to a brilliant career in Berlin and international recognition at the highest levels for her pioneering work in nuclear physics. And that was mostly in the 1920s. But after 1933, what mattered was that she was Jewish, that her background was Jewish. She escaped from Nazi Germany in July, 1938, and she took a position in Stockholm. Five months later, in December 1938, nuclear fission was discovered in her former laboratory in the institute that she shared with Otto Hahn in Berlin. The discovery was the end result of a four-year long investigation into the reactions that take place when uranium is bombarded with neutrons. Scientists everywhere at the time believed that the reactions produced transuranic elements, that is, elements beyond uranium. Meitner initiated the project in Berlin in 1934 and she recruited Hahn and his assistant Fritz Strassmann to work with her. Their research was interdisciplinary, it involved physics and chemistry at every stage. After her escape from Germany, Meitner kept on working with her Berlin team. She corresponded constantly with Hahn and in November 1938, they met in Copenhagen, where she strongly objected on physical grounds to his and Strassmann's most recent findings. And this prompted the chemists to do new experiments that they had not planned to do before. And that led directly, a few weeks later, to the discovery that barium is formed when uranium is, is bombarded by neutrons. It was the, the barium was the first indication that a nucleus, a large nucleus, had split. But Hahn did not understand it. He asked Meitner for, I'm quoting, a fantastic explanation. He said it was, quote, still in a way work by the three of us. She immediately responded. She said a major breakup is not impossible. And that gave Hahn the confidence to publish this very shortly. Within days, Meitner, together with her nephew Otto Robert Frisch, who was also a physicist <clears throat> excuse me, also a physicist and a refugee? For, they formulated the first theoretical explanation of the, of the fission process, and they calculated the immense amount of energy that's released. Physicists greeted nuclear fission as a sensational discovery, and they saw Meitner and Frisch's theoretical work as an essential discovery in its own right. But Meitner's name was missing from the Barium publication. It was politically impossible for Hahn and Strassmann to include her, a Jew in exile, as a co-author. This would provide a reason or an excuse for the Nobel establishment to deny her a prize. Meitner was in Stockholm. She had a position in the Institute of Mani Sigmund, who was Sweden's most influential physicist. She assumed that she'd be welcome and useful. Sigmund, however, was hostile from the start and Meitner was now rendered a complete outsider. She was a foreigner who didn't speak the language very well, a Jewish refugee, a woman. She had no no status, she did not have a laboratory or the funding she needed to work as before. Sigban and two of his associates dominated the five-member Nobel physics committee. Meitner didn't have a chance. Her Swedish friends were sure that she would have been awarded a Nobel Prize if she had emigrated anywhere else. The Nobel story is ugly, but the person who most thoroughly exploited Meitner's exclusion from the Barium publication was Otto Hahn himself. They had been the closest of colleagues and friends for over 30 years. He detested the Nazis and the racial persecution. He knew that her forced immigration was unjust, but that made him politically vulnerable. And Strassman would always regard Meitner as a co-discoverer of Fission. But Hahn began to claim that the discovery had nothing to do with physics. He wrote, Strassman and I absolutely never touched on physics. We only did chemical separations over and over again. He actually wrote this to Meitner in February 1939. Hahn constructed his chemistry narrative to separate himself from Meitner, and he actively promoted it for the rest of his life. His narrative influenced the Nobel decisions, and nearly succeeded in erasing Meitner from the history of, the, of 20th century physics. In post-war Germany, Hahn was an iconic figure. He was a great scientist, the Nobel laureate, the decent German who was never a Nazi. He deliberately projected his image onto all of German science. It was undiminished in excellence, untouched by Nazism or the war. He was hugely admired by the scientific community and beyond. There's a mountain of biographical material. He wrote two autobiographies. His name is on school streets, bridges, more. And still to this day, people remember him and know who he is. Hahn never changed his narrative to include Meitner. In fact, he amplified it. He began to say that physics had impeded the discovery, that Fission could only be discovered after she left berlin including meitner would have sp- <clears throat> excuse me including meitner would have spoiled the myth of science as untainted by nazism and it would have exposed his own dishonesty and betrayal it was still to his advantage to keep her out meitner's marginalization was reinforced and made plausible by prevailing gender assumptions women scientists could not be independent or important or scientists at all. In Germany, she was almost always referred to as Hahn's assistant, another gender stereotype, even by physicists who had been her former colleagues and knew it was not true. It begs the question, could a male scientist of Meitner's prominence have been so thoroughly, so carelessly obscured? The Hahn narrative dominated the public domain it was enshrined, for example, in the Deutsches Museum in Munich. Here's the work table of Otto Hahn. Strass 's name was somewhere in the back, not very visible. And Meitner's name was completely missing. But just look at it. it anyone can see that it's a display of physical apparatus. This indeed was Meitner's apparatus in her lab that, that uh, she uh, put together and constructed. Another example is Hahn and Meitner's former institute where they worked together for 25 years. It was destroyed during the war war, and it was rebuilt as part of the Free University in Berlin. It was named, of course, the Otto Hahn Building. There are plaques that say that Hahn and Strassmann discovered fission here, Meitner not mentioned at all. And yet Meitner never completely disappeared from view. She had been too well known before her exile. Her work with Frisch was a matter of record. The outrage about the Nobel scandal did not go away. Later, Strassmann eventually spoke out. And Meitner, as we know, kept her correspondence with Hahn, which is the source for much of what we know about the Fission discovery. In 1982, physicists in Darmstadt synthesized element 109 a super heavy element they named it meitnerium explicitly as they wrote to render justice to a victim of german racism and to credit in fairness a scientific life and work it makes it, nothing could be could make meitner more visible wherever there's a periodic table anywhere in the world in 1990 after years of protests the Deutsches museum revised this fish and display. They took out the work table sign. And the text now includes Meitner and Strassman and Frisch more fairly. And in 2010, the, An- the Otto Hahn Building was finally renamed. It was renamed as the Hahn Meitner Building. And Meitner is cited as a co-discoverer of nuclear fission. But that leaves us with competing narratives. And that brings us to the question, is it possible to correct or displace a dishonest historical narrative that was inscribed into the historical record. Rewarded, amplified, accepted for years. What does it mean? What does it take to render justice?
4: Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ruth. Um, Our fourth presenter is Robert.
5: Thank you. Reward in science, as elsewhere in society, is far from perfect. For her critical role in the discovery of nuclear fission, Lisa Meitner never received a Nobel Prize. This omission was not the result of a misunderstanding. Meitner's candidacy was thwarted by bias and discrimination, disciplinary politics, and careerist egotism. Ruth Seim already mentioned the antagonistic relationship between refugee Meitner and her Swedish host, committee strongman, Månesigband. Yes, he opposed Meitner, but he was not alone. Both the Nobel committees for physics and for chemistry ignored and distorted facts in their efforts to deny a prize to Meitner. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences awards Nobel prizes based on evaluations and recommendations submitted by its respective five member committees for physics and chemistry. Some committee members try to be dispassionate. Others champion their own agendas. Winning a prize is never an automatic process. Neither number, frequency, nor other statistics related to nominations dictate results. A kaleidoscope of human agency is involved so that the golden Nobel medallions are quite often etched with human frailties. Nuclear fission rapidly entered the Nobel system. On the last day for submitting nominations for the 1939 prizes, January 31st, excuse me, a leading member of the chemistry committee, Tay Svedberg, proposed Otto Hahn, or possibly a division between Hahn and Meitner. Svedberg had long championed nuclear research as belonging to chemistry. He evaluated his own nomination. He noted that nuclear fission rendered false all prior research on the alleged transuranic elements, claiming that Hahn discovered fission after his collaboration with Meitner had ended She therefore had no right to share in a prize. Among a whole range of additional errors, which we can't get into right here, Svedberg attributed the theory of nuclear fission to Niels Bohr. He concluded that Hahn alone should be eventually uh, awarded the Nobel Prize. He again evaluated the two in 1941. Now he insinuated that Meitner could not have contributed to such a momentous discovery as fission. Whereas Hahn had subsequently contributed quote, excellent, unquote, research. Meitner in recent years produced nothing of significance. He neglected to state why her research came to an abrupt stop in Sweden, where she was denied facilities and uh, was languishing in uh, Siegmann's laboratory. Svedberg declared that nuclear fission entailed a purely chemical discovery and was primarily significant for chemistry. We might note, he was already then considering strategies to establish a major nuclear chemical facility. Conclusion, Han alone deserved the prize. In 1942, senior committee member, Wilhelm Palmer dissented, quote, it would be in accordance with the demands of fairness to let, if possible, both researchers divide an eventual prize. Unquote. Palmer nominated Hahn and Meitner, was going to write an evaluation, but unfortunately died. Instead, Svedberg's former student and now close ally, Arne Vestgren, joined the committee. Beskinen had already indicated his preference, having nominated Hahn. Still, he was given the assignment to evaluate both Hahn and Meitner. He largely repeated Svedberg's negative assessment of Meitner, only in stronger terms. Beskinen pinned the blame for the confusion over transuranic elements squarely on Meitner and implied that she had prevented Han from discovering fission earlier. Might be noted that Han had visited uh, Stockholm in spring of 39, and then again in 43, uh, and whether, because what we find more and more in uh, Veskerens and and others' evaluation is the the narrative that Han, as Ruth Stein has, has told us, tried to propagate that, in part, she was preventing him from discovering fission earlier and, of course, had nothing to do with, with physics. However, as a re- evaluator for a Nobel committee, he is supposed to review the literature quite thoroughly. And he would have seen, if he had been done the job properly and impartially, that Hahn had declared on several occasions in his own chemical publications in the late 30s that the reality of the new transuranic element was beyond all doubt. The committee again agreed Han alone should eventually receive a prize. In subsequent evaluations of fission by, by Veskeden, Meitner was not even mentioned. Let's just jump now and go see at the Nobel Committee for Physics. At the same time, parallel, they were also receiving nominations related to fission. These included proposals from Nobel laureates Arthur Compton and James Frank, who pointed out that Hahn and Strassmann only hinted at fission. Meitner and Frisch were the first to identify and confirm the process. Frank underscored that fission was the most important discovery for over a decade in physics and for physics. Yet the physics committee, repeatedly refused to evaluate fission. It insisted that fission belonged to chemistry, while, of course, knowing full well that the chemists had no intention of recognizing Meitner. And to make his own opinion crystal clear, Siegbahn, who never previously submitted nominations, proposed in 1943 that a Nobel Physics Prize for fission should go undivided to Otto Hahn. After the war, the stakes on who has the authority to speak on nuclear matters in Sweden uh, increased dramatically. After the American atomic bombs, the Swedish government, military, and scientific leadership started discussing how to exploit the low-grade uranium deposits in, in Sweden for a national nuclear future both civilian and military uses. In the fall of 45, an advisory committee was established that included Siegmann and Spedberg. A golden age for nuclear research was dawning, and lots of money was at stake. But Siegmann's ambitious visions, including links with the military, faced obstacles. For one, he was not a nuclear physicist. For another, Meitner, who was more knowledgeable and opposed, was on record for opposing military applications of the atom, was emerging as a media celebrity. Talented younger Swedish physicists who wished to break Siegbahn's nuclear monopoly regarded Meitner as an asset. One plan entailed a central role for Meitner in a new unit for nuclear physics at Stockholm University. But Edek Hultein, head of the physics department and member of the Nobel Committee, agreed with Siegbahn to quash this plan. Clearly, a Nobel Prize to Meitner would elevate her from a powerless, despairing, and dependent refugee into an internationally leading authority in nuclear physics, even in Sweden. In 1945, however, the physicists again ignored fission. The chemists initially voted to award Hahn, but they understood that considerable research on fission had been kept secret during the war. They therefore changed their proposal and instead asked for a postponement so they can study the new literature. When the full academy met, a member of the medical section, Jöran Liljestrand, led a rebellion. Hahn must receive his prize without delay. This would show the new, that neutral Swedes can award a Nobel to whomever they choose, including a German, which would get the Americans quite annoyed. With a very slim majority, Hahn received the previously reserved 1944 prize to overturn a unanimous committee proposal required support from several influential members of the academy. Beyond this dubious political facade, other issues may well have prompted this action, including Sigmund's expansive plans beginning to run into trouble. Also, many in the academy wanted to promote Hahn as a leader of post-war German science. An undivided prize uh, would perhaps make him a lot more tolerable to the allied uh, occupiers of of Germany. But rather than bury Meitner's candidacy, the actions in 45 spurred prominent scientists to nominate her for the 1946 Physics Prize. Excuse me. These included former prize winners Niels Bohr, Compton, Frank, Max von Laue, and Max Planck. Bohr and others meticulously connected the dots to show that nuclear fission was the endpoint of Meitner's research program rather than the start of a new project by Hahn. They also revealed many of the details of the behind the scenes uh, actions uh, d- due to the political situation. Now the physics committee had to evaluate. Edek Hutein wrote the report and it entails a highly biased and flawed evaluation. In fact, I would say it was probably uh, among the very worst in the first 50 years of, of, of both prizes. He insisted that Bohr had discovered the physical process of fission, even though Bohr himself wrote in his proposal that this honor belonged to Meitner. Hultein depicted Meitner as being almost alone in believing in the existence of the false transuranic elements. This was particularly disingenuous. It was after all Hultein who had insisted that Enrico Fermi should receive the 1938 prize in part for his discovery of these very same transuranic elements. Hultein evaluated solely on the published record, even though circumstances rendered that record defective. He ignored all of the details that Bohr and others had given on the communications, uh, the secret communications between Meitner and Tom and so forth. Hultain found Meitner unworthy of a prize. The committee agreed. Uh, It might just be mentioned that that year it went to uh, Percy Bridgman who had been rejected numerous times earlier by the committee. They had no new scientific accomplishments, but uh, there's also the political desire of many to get closer to the Americans. Uh, The post-war prizes, the immediate post-war prizes, seemed very much to have uh, an agenda of who should be given authority and not be given authority. And and that worked very much against Meitner, obviously. But when the full academy met to vote, internationally prominent theoretical physicist, Oscar Klein, pointed out factual errors, distortions and omissions in the committee report, but to no avail. Meitner's fate as a researcher, as we've heard, was first crushed by Nazi hatred and then sealed by prejudice and self-interest in Sweden. In recent years with the spread of false facts and political distortions of history, it is important that institutions devoted to research-based truths, be these universities or academies, also respect historical research about science. The cultural heritage of science is much too valuable to be reduced to mere fodder for institutional branding and inflated hero worshiping. History of Science offers a a resource for critical reflection and growth, as well as for identifying past injustices and shameful practices. Thank you for your attention.
0: Thank you, Robert. Our commentator, Sue.
4: Thank you. And thank you to all of the panelists for the papers you have presented and all of the research you've done to highlight and explore injustice in science. The cases of Meitner and Milliken elucidate how systemic racism and sexism have historically influenced the structure of science at all stages and phases, from education through employment, salaries and funding, to awarding of prizes, including the discrimination evidenced in the selection process for the awarding of the Nobel Prize in science, prizes in science. From Professor Simon Friedman's work, the effects of both gender and race, since at that time Jew was defined as a race in the countries where Meitner lived, became evident in all phases of Meitner's education and career. Because of her sex growing up in Vienna, the subjects she could study were restricted to those deemed appropriate for women, and she was not initially allowed to pursue a university degree. Despite having obtained the second doctorate in physics awarded to a woman at the University of Vienna, she worked in Berlin without a salary for years and at first was not permitted in the institute laboratories having to work in the wood shop in the basement and use the restroom at the restaurant down the street. Although her excellent research eventually led her to being the first woman full professor of physics in Germany and a department head at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute of Chemistry, the anti-Jewish Nuremberg laws forced her to lose her positions and flee Nazi Germany despite her conversion to Christianity several years earlier. In Sweden, as described, she struggled for funding, laboratory equipment and space, and continued to face discrimination, particularly at the hands of Mani Siegbahn, on both a daily basis, and ultimately in his preventing her from receiving the Nobel Prize. Despite her having received nominations for both the prize in chemistry 19 times, and in physics 29 times over many years. The presentations by Drs. Kolopy and Che reveal how during the same time period, Robert Milliken experienced the positive benefits that accrued to his race and gender at all phases of his education, funding, position, and career, including receiving the Nobel Prize in 1923. Their work underscores how he used his position as president of Caltech and as a Nobel laureate to support racism and ableism through serving on the board of the Human Betterment Foundation that sent papers on eugenics to the Nazi administration that influenced Germany's 1933 eugenic sterilization laws. Milliken also enabled sexism by questioning the decision of the department chair to hire physicists. Martha Spooner and argued against hiring women in American University physics departments in a letter to the Duke president. He ensured that Caltech remain its male only student and faculty body during his watch, while seeming to support co-education at other institutions. During the discussion, I'd be interested in hearing from Ruth about the reception of her work and her efforts to bring about change in the widely accepted narratives about Han and nuclear fission, and from Robert about the reception of his work, and especially to the play Remembering Miss Meitner, based on his and Ruth's research. It would also be good to learn from Peter and Michael about the reception of their work and activism surrounding um, activism surrounding Millikan encountered both from Caltech alums and the broader scientific community. Before we begin discussion, however, I would like to take a couple of moments to explore how these same issues of sexism and racism permeate the structure of science today, with physics serving as a particular exemplar. Unfortunately, structural sexism and racism permeate to varying degrees today at all levels, from education through employment, salaries and funding to awarding of prizes. Although in the US, women currently earn the majority of undergraduate degrees, including almost half of those awarded in STEM as well as about 45 percent of the masters and 41 percent of the doctorates in STEM, the percentage of women varies tremendously by discipline. In some STEM disciplines such as biology or many of the social sciences, women earn well over half the degrees. In others such as engineering, computer science, and the physical sciences, women earn a much smaller percentage. This first slide shows the percentage of women earning bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees in physics in 1998, 2008, and 2018. These are the latest data available from the National Science Foundation. As you can see, although women have been increasing in share of degrees earned during the past two decades, they still obtain just over 20% of all levels of the degrees in physics. In terms of race, the situation is even more dire. The percentage of bachelor's and master's degrees, excuse me, in all STEM disciplines is about 20%. And the percentage of doctorates is about 12 to 13% for all underrepresented minorities. Since a large number of degrees earned by URMs are in the social sciences, which count in STEM NSF statistics, the number of degrees awarded in physics is very low. For example, I calculated from the NSF data that about 2.8% of bachelor's degrees were earned by Blacks or African Americans in 2018. When examined from an intersectional perspective of both race and gender, URM women obtain a higher percentage of STEM degrees at all levels than URM men, but the percentage is relatively low, less than 14% of the bachelor's degrees, and less than 6% of the doctoral degrees. In physics, about 3% of bachelor's degrees go to Black or African American women, and about 2.7% are earned by Black or African American men. Although unemployment is relatively low among all STEM degree holders, Both women and underrepresented minorities experience discrimination in terms of level of position, career advancement, and salaries. You'll note that women physical or earth scientists earn about 60,000 degrees, what, $60,000, while men earn closer to $80,000. Substantial research has demonstrated also that women are nominated less frequently and are less likely to receive prizes and awards for their work in STEM. Often when women do receive STEM awards from professional societies, the awards are for teaching or mentoring rather than research. Men receive the bulk of the prestigious awards and prizes for research, including the Nobel prize. In 2021, no women received Nobel Prizes in science, although the Nobel Peace Prize did go to a woman, Maria Ressa. This dearth of women awardees resulted in an outcry, particularly because it had been hoped that the situation of awarding Nobel Prizes was improving. Since in 2020, much had been made of the fact that two women, Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna, shared the Nobel in medicine or physiology the first time that any Nobel had ever been shared by two women, although many times two or three men had shared the award. As this slide shows, until 2020, only 23 women had ever received a science Nobel, while 631 men had received the award. The situation also had been improving in physics. Both in 2018 and in 2020, a woman received a Nobel Prize in Physics. This signaled a distinct improvement since only four Nobel Prizes in Physics had ever gone to women. Marie Curie in 1903, Maria Geppert-Meyer in 1963, Donna Strickland in 2018, and Andrea Ghez in 2020. The lack of women awardees in 2021 led to recurring critiques of the process, including publication of the gender composition of the Nobel selection committee, which is heavily male dominated, as you can see from this slide. Critiques have also been raised with regard to race as no blacks have ever received a science Nobel, although several Asians have been recipients in more recent years. In response to the critiques, Goran Hansen, the head of the Nobel Committee, made the following statement. We have decided we will not have quotas for gender or ethnicity, he said, adding that the decision was in line with the spirit of Alfred Nobel's last will. In the end, we will give the prize to those who are found the most worthy, those who have made the most important contributions. In the publicity and interviews that followed, he went on to discuss the factors in education position and research funding that resulted in few women receiving the prize. Commentators at the time also raised issues of implicit bias and discrimination as other factors. This raises inevitable questions surrounding structural racism, sexism, and ableism in science and where we go from here. The editor of the journal Science, Holden Thorpe, in his January 7th, 2022 editorial, Looking Ahead, Looking Back, notes how in 2021, the journal Science devoted time to discussion of Darwin's harmful views of race and gender in recognition of the 150th anniversary of the publication of Descent of Man. Also, devoted space to the role of AAAS in promoting eugenics and experiments using developmentally disabled children conducted by Harvard Medical School, Massachusetts General Hospital, and Boston University School of Medicine on the physiological effects of nuclear fallout. Thorpe concludes that, and I quote, science is not afraid to point out its role in supporting malicious science. It is history that should not be forgotten and can guide us in working with the community to confront shortcomings past and present in our pages and across the scientific enterprise. So as we begin our discussion, I would like to ask how can the history of science, especially the cases of Meitner and Milliken presented today inform our current situation and help us to evaluate injustice in science. Or as Professor Stein asked, is it possible to correct, displace a dishonest historical narrative that was inscribed into the record, rewarded, amplified, accepted for years? What does it take to render justice?
0: Thank you so much, Sue. And I'm I'm struck by that. Language um, of merit alone, Um, especially as we think about these cases that we've just been exploring, and merit is the least of it. Um, It's not what's happening in these cases. So, the invocation of neutrality and purity and autonomy and independence and universalism and all the things that, in some ways, are so appealing about science are the very, it's almost the underbelly of those things that we admire and look up to. So with that, I guess I'll ask, does anyone wanna to respond to Sue's um, uh, comments? Any, any of those questions that she raises so nicely. I think uh, she asked both, the, both Michael and Peter about the responses to the discussion of Milliken and both Ruth and Robert about the really incredible responses to the treatment of Meitner.
1: I think that the responses of the on-campus Caltech community, and I have less sense of alumni, to um, the institution reconsidering Millikan and removing his name from objects and so on, to this this, um, individually-oriented change that I think um, Michael's critique of is very apt, um, but the kinds of individually-oriented changes that we've seen, uh, has been as varied as one could expect it could to be. I certainly hear people who say, this was all a mistake. We should have kept things exactly as they were. Um, His scientific achievements justify this honor and so on, right? Um, um, One of the things that I think really shaped how I experienced the discussions uh, uh, of, of these changes was that they occurred during a pandemic. And I didn't actually see face to face the people who were engaged in these discussions. And I think that often people who disagreed with each other just didn't talk to each other throughout that period of time. And so I think there was actually, um, a, in, in some ways, a less robust discourse than there would have been if people had run into each other walking across campus. Um, that said, I think that the same phenomenon of the pandemic made it possible to hold online events that brought people who had some common interest together in numbers that were much greater than we tend to see at events on a campus where people focus on spending their time in their labs. Um, And so um, I think that there was a much more uh, active discourse among subsets of the community that might have had some underlying agreement or some underlying interest in a particular mode of analyzing the historical issues. Um, I just don't think that we had a single conversation that brought everyone in, partly partly because of um, administrative priorities and that that kind of participatory process wasn't what our administration tried to do. Um, But also I think partly because people weren't bumping into each other in the way that we do when we live together on a campus, in normal times. So it was, I think it was a very peculiar process in many ways.
0: Michael, could you um, comment oh. on your experience in terms of reactions to the work you did? In some ways, you occupy a different professional role um, and also as an alum, a different position.
2: I mean, I guess um, what I would say in response to what Peter was saying, I agree about the pandemic and stuff. I mean, um, You know, it definitely was an interesting time. And, you know, I I remember, you know, um, there was all the talk about, you know, um, removing Confederate monuments and stuff. I'm thinking, you know, this did bring up, this is very common in social change. If you study like social, you know, uh, um, rise of social movements, it's very common that a certain kind of event will then trigger a whole set of conversations about something which had never been talked about before, or, or not never, but I mean, but. And so it was the first time, you know, so I was, you know, in some sort of online discussion and talking, and somebody said, oh, you know, it was actually in Pomona College, the person went to Pomona College, was, you know, and, you know, there's a name, there's a building named after Millikan and Pomona and Millikan was a, you know, racist eugenicist. And I thought, whoa, I'd never heard of this before. So that's when I started looking at it. So it was clearly about that moment, you know, um, but, I, you know, talking about how justice can be found in general, I mean, like when I was struck, when I listened to the to talk about Meitner and, you know, the thing about Millikan is that there was absolutely no cover up. You know, there was no, like, it's all out in the open. It was, you know, and I, I remember Googling, and it's like, wow, people talked about this very explicitly in the LA Times, like, you know, in 1996 or something. This is a long time ago. You know, so I'm thinking, like, why didn't some Caltech faculty member say, hey, I read this New York Times thing about Millikan, and maybe we should, you know, get, you know distance ourselves or something, you know, and uh, um, I guess my explanations in my mind have to do with, you know, again, God, kind of like, maybe some, there's something about, like, what, um, you no, know, Susan mentioned, which is about uh, um, you know, the underbelly of. I mean, it's both a good and a bad thing. This idea of your commitment to universality, kind of disembodied people that you know, we kind of like we we think the best science is ones which people's lives do not intrude. That kind of thing. So therefore, it makes us kind of really willfully ignorant of, uh, um, you know, prejudices of uh, um, human kind of evil, essentially human biases. And so maybe that's something about again, like if you are asking why. Caltech, even to this day, is much worse than the neighborhood Unitarian you know, universalist church at dealing with this. So um, another thing which is obvious is I think it's just that you know there are a lot more non-white people in the United States now. <laughs> you know, so for institutions, you know, they have to worry about, you know, back when I was in Caltech in 81, you know, it was more like you know, white liberalism was like, oh, let's try to make you know people of color feel okay, you know, we have to be fair. But now it's really a matter of institutional survival for most, you know, universities, you know. I keep on telling people like in among people under 18 in the united states 50 percent of people are color and in california the people under 18 75 percent are people of color so like if you want in your, your institution to exist you better have you know students <laughs> you know so you know and of course like think about women you know more and more women are you know it's becoming more and more you know there's there's just a lot more powerful there's a lot more women presence level. and uh, um you know so it's I think now it's seen as kind of more of an existential kind of actual threat to the future of the institution in a way which wasn't before so maybe that's it and but in terms of like um, i feel like the discourse about all this stuff is still very nascent it's still very like you know it's kind of like when people thought about sexual harassment back in the 70s or 80s first of all there was no sometimes at the beginning there weren't even words for it it was like you know and now we have the least kind of laws and kind of like a procedure, and even st- still, extremely, you know, um, you know, not really well thought out, and extremely not. But at least there's a little bit of a discourse. So I feel like this whole thing about you know how we find justice for these cases in science is still very, um, we're still developing in some sense. So I'm hoping that like, like this panel, this kind of thing, you know, will help you know develop that, and um, you know, so I guess. It just, it's striking to me though, how long it has taken, I guess, you know, like in Meitner's case too, like how this has taken, how long, you know, like, you know, why is that? I think that's, you know, we should talk about that.
4: I think Ruth, you had a comment about that and relating to what Michael is saying, uh, you know, this issue about merit, there was some suggestion in the other side of that is that uh, somehow women or people of color are not meritorious that there would be, as the head of the Nobel committee said, a quota that would be filled, not that their work was meritorious. And perhaps you could comment on that in terms of the reception of your work. And also I'd like to hear Robert on this.
3: The perceptions of my work have been sort of dual. Uh, I'm focusing on Germany because that's where the perception of Lisa Meitner during Otto Hahn's time was the lowest. She actually had uh, was much better recognized in the United States and elsewhere. But Germany was the place um, because of Otto Hahn and, and the admiration for him that she was least recognized. And since then, since my work and the work of others, there has been a great deal of recognition actually for Lisa Meitner even during her lifetime, she was granted awards. Subsequently, I've mentioned a few of the things, but there are quite a few others where she has been recognized. But what is kind of interesting is that this recognition has never been at the expense of Otto Hahn or of any real examination of what happened during that time. In fact, it's almost a substitute for it. I don't not ne- not necessarily intentional, but that's how it has worked out. Lisa Meitner has been built up and recognized as an important scientist, someone who was uh, persecuted and forced to emigrate, and the Germans are have done a great deal of memory work, and they have have made an attempt to um, uh, uh, to uh, have restitution for some of these things. But that restitution does not extend to actually examining what happened if it affects a very important individual like Otto Hahn. And in this case, Otto Hahn is, was an iconic figure. There's an element of idolatry similar to um, uh, Millikan or other great scientists that they can do no wrong because they are scientists, because they are truth seekers. And it, it, it creates an aura about them in the larger, in the, in the scientific community and the wider public, that they are extraordinarily morally special, as well as scientifically special. And that, I think, has not been touched yet.
4: But Robert, uh, is, do you have a similar reaction to your work?
5: Uh, yes, it, it, it's, it's been mixed. Well, I, I should preface that when I first published on the Nobel Prizes, I was the first, What myself and Elizabeth Crawford were the first ones who went into the archives and also understood the need to study the documents in context, to find uh, correspondence, uh, diaries, uh, analyze rough drafts, and to realize that These evaluative reports uh, are written for one purpose only, to persuade the full academy that the committee's proposal is the only legitimate one. What I found when my book came out was uh, the politics of of, of excellence. Uh, Of course, there was complete silence from from Stockholm. I then wrote a one-act play on the Meitner incident uh, for a uh, science festival in Gothenburg. Uh, I was invited by the actors who had played in uh, Michael Frank's Copenhagen in in, uh, in Gothenburg. Uh, And and behind it all was a leading uh, physicist at Chalmers uh, Institute of Technology. When the play was, it's exactly 20 years ago and it it was written and in May 2002, it was performed, 200 people, a huge applause. Uh, In fact, I couldn't believe it, I had goosebumps. It was an incredible experience. Um, Then we had a panel discussion, different tones appeared. The The then secretary of the physics committee said, well, you know, uh, it wasn't usual to divide prizes at those times. And I said, that's not so. You know, I just rattled off the number of divided prizes. Then one of uh, Sigmund's disciples spoke and said, well, it might have been a good play, but it's full of lies. And you know why there were lies? Because Meitner is being uh, used as a, as a tool by feminists. And Zionists, and uh, you know, the audience was just la- la- laughing at him. He then subsequently went on to write various uh, articles in Swedish physics, popular physics journals, attacking both Ruth's book and, and my play. Um, but then the play was brought to the Gothenburg City Theater, and. Uh, was on the repertoire for seven seasons at the popular lunch theater. Even when discussions were not um, uh, planned, audience, regular people uh, <laughs> even, stated I uh, wanted to know more. I mean, the actors had, they all read Ruth's book. In fact, Ruth's book and my book were props in, in, in the play. Um, and, um, and then this Bjorn Jonsson, the professor at Chalmers, organized at a very large World Congress for Nuclear and Particle Physics, held in Gothenburg in 2004, performances in English. 900 people over two evenings saw the play, standing ovations. It's been a major success. Uh, It was brought back to theaters in Valencia twice. It's gone to a number of regional theaters uh, their plans to bring it to other cities in, uh, in Spain and, and discussions af- afterwards. Uh, similarly, uh, you know, in terms of what is su- success in, in things that cannot possibly hope for in our beautifully written scholarly work or even published popular works, when it was produced in Bologna, uh, the rector of the University of Bologna, with tears running down his face, comes over to me afterwards. Big man gives me a hug, saying "Grazie, grazie." I'll never forget this. So my experience is, even though it is very difficult and to achieve, but a really well-written play that has, a, you know, theatrical value, is one way. Of, of reaching audiences and forcing the scientists to pay attention because that's what happened with, with this.
0: We really are puzzling about in different ways is how in the world in 2022 are we still in this same place? And I mean, as, I mean as, as Michael and Peter were pointing out, this isn't secret stuff. And many, many people knew what had happened to Meitner and knew that women were not receiving Nobel Prizes and, and really, Sue, I have to admit your, your data, your, you know, scientific quantitative data on women's participation in the selection of Nobel Prize winners and women's receipt of Nobel Prizes, it's pretty depressing. And so I guess I, I know that you've already had a chance to comment, but I would really love to hear you talk a little bit about, you know, What do you make of that? How in the world in 2022 are we still looking at at committees that barely include the representation of women when in practice in many fields women are very important technical experts and why, why is the system so resistant to change?
4: Well, you know i'm glad that you asked that question uh, i've spent really my career studying that i have made a, an abrupt switch from being a biologist to more uh, uh you know women's studies and sociology of science and uh, this is the question that haunts us all we have been at this for a very long time and things have not appreciably changed and you know to bring it to the present moment sadly the pandemic seems to have set things back even further because mm-hmm. you may have seen the most recent uh, national academy of sciences and actually the institute of medicine and and engineering were in on this also showing that women's productivity in science has been severely affected by uh, what has occurred with the pandemic it's mostly been a lot of the, the, uh, some men, and it depends on the discipline, but have actually increased their productivity. And there's more research output, more scholarly output, and so on. And most women have not. And there's quite a bit of attrition, women just dropping out because of sort of picking up the second shift. And that's not all that's going on uh, with the current political situation in the United States and around the rest of the world to be truthful, um, there seems to be more permission for some pretty uh, regressive ideas. And uh, it's sad to say, but sexism and racism are now um, more overtly accepted, although there's this polarization that has occurred in the country. So it's it's a very large problem and seems to be growing worse. It's, it's not so much better, even though we have more women in uh, the various fields, the current trend is a little bit depressing and particularly with regard to the pandemic and what will happen. And going hand in hand with this is the, uh, in my opinion, uh, public view of higher education And, you know, how that is now not being seen perhaps as necessary, not being seen, you know, it's sort of an opinion or something rather than dealing with, as you all have suggested, uh, some truths, some facts. We have to keep putting that out there as something to be important. So it's a very serious issue. This panel uh, addresses in my opinion, you know, how do we get justice in science and the role that history of science, which is very important to bring to all of this. So thank you all very much for this very lively uh, panel discussion. I learned a lot myself and I hope our audience also has learned a lot. Thank you.